0: Welcome to the AWPT podcast, a safe space for personal trainers and coaches who want to learn, grow, and feel heard in the fitness industry. Each week, we'll bring you industry-relevant discussions on all things coaching, mindset, and professional development, empowering you with the tools to be a competent and confident coach. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the AWPT podcast. Today, I am joined by Aidan, who is a dietitian, and he's going to tell us all about himself and what he does. And today, we're going to be talking about ADHD and nutrition and how we can potentially manage certain conditions, certain symptoms through food and you know, accurate nutrition and planning. Um, but before we jump into all of that, um, I'd love to know, Aidan, for you to sort of introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, what you love, all of that good stuff.
1: So I am a dietitian and I view myself as a bit of a split between dietitian, and clients and everything like that, content creator and now more so business owner as well, and I try to split my time like mostly between those two first two buckets of seeing clients and then creating content, and that kind of leads into like, what do I post about? Like, I, I post about kind of what I'm interested in from a nutrition perspective, and there's some common themes. I don't really have a niche, but like I do like body composition stuff, sports nutrition stuff, um, certain health-related things, and anything that kind of catches my eye. And that's like where the ADHD stuff, kind of. Like, some people just, like, ask some questions being like, what should we do with ADHD? And it was clear that it was, like, a large percentage of my audience cared about that, which is why I went so deep down this rabbit hole.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. And we'll go into that because one of the things that I love about your page and everything that you do is sort of the plethora of detailed insight and sort of how you really deep dive into you know, how we can use food and nutrition to manage or address like a variety of different conditions. And obviously today we're going to be talking about ADHD. And I think, I mean, this is probably just partly naivety and a lack of education on my part, but I really haven't heard a lot about nutrition and ADHD um, spoken about, but obviously it's such a I want to say it's such a prevalent condition, but so many people manage ADHD and manage ADHD symptoms. And so I think it's important not only to sort of understand the condition, but understand how the condition and the symptoms of the disorder are going to impact how they navigate food sensitivities and, you know, behavioral um, symptoms around food and eating and nutrition as well.
1: Yeah, and I think the point you touched on with like not many people speaking about it or creating content on it, it kind of tells you a few things. Like one, it kind of tells you how effective nutrition interventions can be, like jumping to the conclusion of that. Like it means it can't cure it, so to speak. You can definitely help manage symptoms. You can definitely improve symptoms. You can think about ADHD almost as a bit of a spectrum in a way where it's like somebody could be near a diagnosis but not get a diagnosis. And it makes it interesting being like, hang on, if nutrition plays a role here, could that have pushed them away from getting a diagnosis? Or if somebody had certain stuff that we're going to talk about, could that push them towards a diagnosis? It gets much into semantics there. And then the other thing that it tells you that there's a lot of people not talking about is like the controversial nature of it in a way as well about being like, There's going to be some stuff that I'm going to talk through today that is just like kind of just like factual information. And then there's going to be some stuff that could just be like tips, so to speak. And the tips is where it gets a bit controversial because it's like not every tip is going to work for everybody. And somebody who hears a tip that I put out there that doesn't work for them, like could view that quite negatively as well, which is a really hard part to navigate in this space.
0: Yeah, that's such an interesting point to bring up because, I mean, it, it definitely is relevant to a whole variety of different conditions and disorders that people go through in that everybody experiences things differently and so when you know we're talking about a condition in sort of a broad sense if not everybody relates to every single symptom or how you know a, you know a, a general understanding of how the disorder might affect you then people can get yeah definitely a little bit iffy about you know, because I think, too, ADHD as well as other disorders as well as, like, mental health conditions and stuff like that can become, like, it's a very deeply personal um, Mm. thing to experience. And for a lot of people it becomes a big part of their identity, you know, for right or for wrong. And so when people who may not experience or, like, may not personally experience the disorder or the condition are are talking about the issue and talking about it from, like, a, scientific perspective rather than an empathic perspective yeah yeah cause a bit of friction
1: yeah and like before we get into everything else that was actually one of the things that was the toughest for me when I was putting out so much content on this in that it's not something that I have a diagnosis of or anything like that and can't relate on many many levels and it's kind of like, I'm just putting this out because I'm trying to help people, but I, I find this difficult because there's other areas where I'd say the exact same thing. For example, if I work with somebody with PCOS, I can't relate. Like I, I, can't, I can't experience it. Um, I work in the weight loss space and sure, I've lost weight, but I've never lost, like I work with people who are 200 kilos. Like I, I can never relate to their experiences. I can try and listen. I can try and learn. I can try and have empathy and everything like that, but I can't relate, but the ADHD space, that is a great example where using those tips as an example, like one of the one of the posts I put out in one of the tips amongst the list of like 20, I said something like try planning in advance where possible. And I don't think that's controversial. I don't think try planning where possible is controversial, but that was probably the most pushback on anything I put out there because some people were like, no, I literally have executive dysfunction in my brain that makes this difficult. That's why I struggle making plans. <laughs> um, and it's so hard because it's like I can't relate to that. Like I can say try planning where possible, but I can't have experienced those exact same things. But that's where it gets tricky as well because it's like if I had experienced those same things, because there's levels to this everyone's experiencing a different experience, my experience also wouldn't align with each individual's experience anyway, which makes it tough too. Yeah,
0: definitely. I We did a podcast um, last week. It came out last week on... Um, diversity and representation within the fitness industry. And one of the things that we were talking about was um, the experience of people of color and people of different cultured backgrounds and how other people such as, you know, white, co- white coaches can't necessarily empathize or fully understand the experiences of, you know, these other people of color. Um, However, on a personal level, because we haven't had to experience it because of the privileges that we've had. However, that isn't to say that we can't understand it to a certain level through, you know, educating ourselves. And I think that's what the AWPT podcast is all about, is trying to have may not experience things on a first hand so that we can better help our clients um, who do experience, you know, whatever it is that we're talking about
1: yeah for sure
0: so let's maybe dive into let's just dive straight in um really so like firstly can you sort of discuss what adhd is um and some of the symptoms that people with the disorder might present with
1: so adhd is a bit of a neurodevelopmental disorder in a way um like That's probably the easiest way I can describe it. Like that whole like executive dysfunction I was kind of talking about in terms of like challenges that people will face or like the kind of symptoms and everything like that, like in the name a little bit, attention deficit, hyperactive disorder, like the name kind of describes it a little bit, um, but there's very much variations on how it can present. Talking about it from the perspective of like, how does this tie in with nutrition there's some challenges that are inherently faced by somebody with ADHD and nutrition before we get through anything that we can do to like help or anything like that. But like some of the challenges are just simply like forgetting to eat during the day. Something that not everybody experiences but is a bit of a common experience is although people might struggle with attention at times for things that don't interest them, they can massively hyper-focus on things that do interest them. And another thing, I think there's a better way of saying that, but they can lose track of time in that moment as well. Like they could sit down to be like, I want to do this for two hours. This is interesting. This is how I want to spend my time. And then eight hours just go by and they haven't done anything else apart from that thing. Um so obviously forgetting to eat during the day, that's a big thing. That can have implications in many ways. Like for example in the bodybuilding world where people want to be spreading their protein intake out across the day, it kind of gets in the way of that. But even just general life like Sometimes people forget to overeat during the day, or sorry, they forget to eat during the day, and then they overeat at night because they're so hungry. Um, Binge eating disorder is far more common in people with ADHD as well. That's partly tied in with that as well. Um, Medications, Once somebody's on medications or if somebody's on medications, some of these medications can suppress appetite, which contributes to that as well, particularly when it wears off at night. So now they're even more hungry at night. some digestive problems, some food sensitivities sometimes, impulsive decision making. I think some people oversimplify this, but some people have referred to it as dopamine seeking. So for example, choosing a high sugar food for that kind of like reward center type thing, Um, difficulty with planning and preparation. Like some people can just like plan ahead, meal prep and everything like that. Um, Some people that will be harder for. um, And then that, preparation and everything like that can lead to other food choices as well. So there's so many things that can be going on from a food perspective that makes nutrition more difficult.
0: Yeah. There's so many things that you said within that answer that like, I want to sort of dive into a little bit, Um, especially the dopamine seeking um, sort of sugar um, kind of conversation around ADHD nutrition, Mm. because I know you did a post on that in particular, um, and it was mm-hmm. interesting, like reading through some of the comments on that, and how some people like, oh yeah, like I know that potentially reducing my sugar intake is going to be beneficial for me, but like the the thrill of the sugar like keeps bringing me yeah. back. All of that. But can you talk a little bit about sugar and ADHD?
1: Yeah, so this is probably the most controversial one. So let's let's get into that one. Um, so like the the first thing. So this thing we kind of just, that you kind of just touched on about how um, seeking sugar more, that's that's very clear. Like that's very clear. Um, Where it gets controversial is, does it contribute to symptoms? And I've seen some very smart people who work in the ADHD space very clearly be like, there's a clear link. It's so clear. It's so obvious. We see this all the time. The part where it gets really tricky and where you're combining all of these things is the meta-analysis data looking at all the research on the topic has found no link between ADHD and sugar, as in higher sugar intake, when all other variables are equal, has not contributed to ADHD symptoms. And then the third part that makes this really complex is if you speak to the parent of a child with ADHD, there is a high chance that they're going to have made a link as well, just being like, oh, every time my child has sugar, they get more hyperactive, or there's so many things that go on there. And there's so many explanations for that, and like I, I think it's worthwhile paying attention to both. It's worthwhile paying attention to what the research has shown, um, particularly because research can do like randomized controlled situations where it's like, let's give half of these people placebo, and let's give half of them sugar, or alternatively, it's like, let's give them a calorie amount, amount of something that isn't sugar versus sugar. And we can see that under those settings, we can't really find much difference. But In the real world why is it that we'd find changes in behavior like one is simply that sugar contains a lot of calories if somebody's already got a tendency towards hyperactivity and they have more calories more energy maybe that's a factor um i haven't touched on this yet but we're going to talk about micronutrients later probably and high sugar intake usually means low micronutrient intake that could be a factor high sugar usually means high intake of artificial colors like when people are eating sugar is it just straight up sugar or is it like lollies is it soft drink is it these things that have colors in them as well we'll probably talk about that as well um Expectation of symptoms and behavior change. Like, I know my parents, for example, used to always make jokes being like, when you have kids one day, we'll load them up on Red Frogs and they'll come home and they'll be crazy. And that, that means the parents would potentially be expecting behavior change, but what if the kids also hear them saying that? There's so many things there. Um, and then there's individual variation too that doesn't get picked up in picked up averages. And you can see it. I'm trying to, like, walk a fine line between all of these things between being, like, very smart people in this space think there's a link. Not all of them, but some of them do. A lot of parents will identify a link. A lot of individuals will identify a link themselves. The meta-analysis data hasn't found a link. And then we've also got that other aspect that we were touching on about how they're seeking more sugar as well, just due to that kind of reward center kind of thinking.
0: It's such a fine line. And I think this probably applies to lots of different aspects of sort of science and research and stuff like that. I know it's something that Kayla talks about quite a lot when it comes to, um, like female physiology and anatomy and stuff like that is, you know, research is both, you know, the scientific meta-analysis, but it is also or evidence, I should say, rather than Mm. research. Um, there is the research component of the meta-analysis. And then there is also, you know, your personal experience and there's also the experience and like the anecdotal evidence from clients and it's taking yeah. all of that into consideration i think is valid and important when we're making sort of decisions or having conversations around it
1: yeah 100 you can see this in so many spaces like in the adhd world there's like there's not heaps and heaps of research there is research but there's not heaps and it makes you think how many gaps there are that are not covered by the research and it's like if you made strong interpretations based on the research how many things would you miss but then it does go both ways as well where there is that advantage of placebo control kind of thing like in terms of let's use a good example in this space about being like if somebody gave their child red frogs and their child got hyperactive and then a randomized control trial study got done with like thousands of participants and The children had blindfolds and half of them got red frogs and half of them got like a placebo version that happened to be similar and they both had the exact same symptoms you kind of trust the placebo controlled randomized control trial in that case but without that information is where it gets tougher
0: Mm, definitely and also it's i suppose one of the things with like a study around sort of hyperactivity and like sugar and stuff like that particularly Mm. with kids is when it comes to sort of that idea of placebo, surely there is also an element of, you know, if there's a lot of hyperactivity going on around you with other people being, like, amped up on sugar, someone with ADHD, you're probably going to cotton on to that kind of energy and that's also going to impact you just from, like, a behavioural standpoint as well.
1: Yeah. And that's part of the anecdotal stuff with, like, a lot of this stuff, like, revolves around there, like, every time I take my child to a party that has this, like that happens and it's hard to say like what is causing what there's so many variables going on
0: Mm, definitely and so let's sort of dive a little bit deeper into that i suppose behavioral side of adhd and the symptoms around it i don't even know if behavioral is the right word but um Mm. you know it's in the name in terms of this like hyperactive sort of disorder Mm. and how that is going to have an impact on a person's nutritional requirements i'm just thinking I suppose, like putting two and two together is that if someone has ADHD and they're potentially quite sort of hyperactive, that is going to have an impact on their meat and, you know, the amount of energy that they're spending throughout the day because they are potentially moving more. Um, Can we maybe, yeah, dive into that a little bit in terms of how that has an impact on someone who has ADHD and what that means as far as, you know, adapting a person's nutrition plan?
1: So if we're looking at solely from a calorie perspective, I haven't directly seen research on that, but there's a few like like we can make a safe bet that it does increase need. In um, an example that I often share with people is Parkinson's disease, where people are shaking all the time. Um, we see dramatic increases in energy expenditure in that. Like from a nutrition perspective, it's like trying to make sure they eat enough is is a common challenge. So yeah, I'd say we'd see that with ADHD. Um, It's just hard to put it on a tier of, like, how much things matter with, like, everything else that's also going on as well. True.
0: Well, I suppose, as as you were saying earlier, you know, there's also the different element of the fact that a lot of people with ADHD might experience, you know, that hyperfixation and and not eating enough throughout the day just because of their other symptoms, let alone that, you know, additional, you know, potential um, energy expenditure throughout the day.
1: Yeah, for sure. Can we talk about micronutrients? I'd love to talk about yes,
0: that. Let's do it. Let's do it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cause I like there's there's a lot of stuff that like if somebody's listening to this with ADHD, they might be at this point being like, I just don't feel like I've got anything that's useful yet. And like I'm hoping I'm hoping to give something here. So there's a lot of common nutrients that have been identified as being more likely to be deficient or low in people with ADHD. And the first thought you might have with that is chicken or the egg scenario, being like, is that because people with ADHD have different nutrition intakes? Are they more likely to have different food preferences? We kind of just talked about that um, whole dopamine-seeking kind of thing where choosing high-sugar foods, etc., impulsive decision-making, poor planning, etc. So that's part of it. But the other part of it is... We can really solve that problem easily by being like, what does the research show when we address these deficiencies? Does it change the, Does it change symptoms? And that's where things get really exciting for me because this is a part where I can share like, it's not just my thoughts or opinions. It's like literally just me being, hey, the research has shown that if we address this thing, it improves symptoms. So the first one I'm gonna start with is iron deficiency. If somebody has iron deficiency, addressing iron deficiency seems pretty clearly to help ADHD symptoms. Where that gets more exciting, because that by itself is a little bit boring to me, because I'm like, iron deficiency is, like, it's relatively common in women, it's not super common in men, Um, but where it gets more exciting to me is the research just shows that people with ADHD are far more likely to be iron deficient, and partly that is just due to differences in food preferences and stuff like that, but... There's also a bit of, like, as some smart people have pointed out that there's a thing called hepcidin, which basically reduces iron absorption. And maybe that's in play with ADHD. Um, I haven't seen much on that. But one study found that, like, 84% of children with ADHD were low in ferritin, which is a marker of iron status, and 18% in the control group were low, which therefore means, like, I, I think it's a stretch to say that that's going to work perfectly at a population level being like 84% of children like I think it's a hot take to say that but I think it's pretty safe to say a large percentage of people with ADHD in children at least have low iron and it's almost like one of the first things you should do is get a blood test just to see because if you address that it helps improve symptoms yeah going Going into other stuff, like there's a bunch of other stuff that I'll go through quicker than the iron one. The iron one I'm just like really interested in, but like omega-3s, a systematic review found that like 13 out of 16 studies on omega-3s and omega-6 supplementation found improvements in symptoms. This is a simple one. If your dietary intake of omega-3s isn't great, like if you're not having fish two to three times a week with at least one of them coming from a fatty source like salmon, it probably makes sense to supplement omega-3. This isn't something that's going to change the game. It's not going to like solve ADHD, but it helps symptoms in a lot of cases um zinc supplementation like I, I actually don't just recommend zinc supplementation willy-nilly i think like having a good diet is a starting point but the reason i'm talking about this is because every study so there's four to the best of my knowledge that have been done on zinc supplementation and those with adhd has improved symptoms as i said i just increased dietary intake of that but it's useful to know that um vitamin d supplementation i think everybody should get their vitamin d status checked at least at some stage um but deficiency of vitamin D seems a little bit linked with ADHD symptoms. I think it's important to address that deficiency anyway for other reasons. So it's a nice bonus that this could help that. Um, some research has found that people with ADHD have lower levels of magnesium in their body as well. Once again, it makes sense to be on top of that in terms of higher dietary intake. B vitamins, this is where it gets trickier because there doesn't, be that, doesn't seem to be a link in both directions. Where... People with ADHD clearly have lower levels of B vitamins. um, And the lower they are, the more linked it has been with severity of symptoms. But research on addressing that has not been as promising. So I don't have a strong opinion there. But then the final thing that I think this is like the nail in the coffin that micronutrients matter is that there's two studies on multivitamin supplements and ADHD symptoms. And they've both found that adding multivitamins improves symptoms across the board on average which therefore tells you, like, I've just listed a bunch of micronutrients that are important, but it's, like, really just a better intake of micronutrients in general seems to be a good thing.
0: When you're working with clients, you touched on, obviously, food comes first and then, you know, Mm. supplementation comes sort of second to that. Um, How do you go about, I suppose, do you prefer prescribing or encouraging specific vitamins in terms of like a specific omega-3 vitamin or a specific vitamin D vitamin, or do you go down the route of the multivitamins, especially because I'm imagining too with ADHD and we touched on it earlier in terms of like meal prep, for example, that being hard, you know, behaviorally to sort of like stay on top of, um, any kind of supplementation is potentially going to be an additional kind of like stressor
1: (laughs) yeah yeah that's exactly right so my first thought and this isn't helpful for anybody listening but like my first thought is when somebody does tell me what they eat and everything like that i can usually get a pretty good gauge about being like oh this intake slow this intake like i can usually figure some stuff out pretty quickly um in a previous job i used to use um a app called food zone which would basically measure people's micronutrient intake in comparison to what they said obviously it's not perfect because what people say they eat isn't a perfect representation of what they do but it you can give you a clear insight is like this nutrient is super low or something like that so if i can pinpoint specific things that are low through dietary intake that would be the first thing i'd address either through food or supplements the next one is like some of these things can be easy on a blood test like if you um get a blood test you can find iron and you can find um, vitamin d quite easily if those are deficient but if there's only like one or two things that are low i'll target those specifically but where it's tricky is if somebody's going to have a low intake of a lot of things that's where i'm probably more looking at the multivitamin either by itself or in addition to something that's a bit more targeted. Like, for example, if somebody's very deficient in vitamin D, maybe I'll do multivitamin and address vitamin D deficiency with a supplement too. And that last bit about like the supplement thing, I did get a few like messages from some people on that as well, just like pushing back about being like, with my ADHD, it'd be impossible to take a supplement consistently. And that's where this is so difficult because I don't have a good answer to that, like, Is it setting an alarm for yourself every day to make sure that you take it? Is it is it is there a system where you put it at eye level so you can see it every day? Um, And it's so hard because my my answer to that is trying to find something that works for you. And I hope that's not controversial because all I've said is trying. (laughs) It's not saying like set an alarm. It's not like it's like it's like keep trying until you find a strategy that does work for you. If you don't find something that works for you, it's like well the problem is going to exist regardless. But these would be some steps that I would try to go down the route of doing.
0: Yeah, and I would love to sort of dive into a couple more of those um, tips, which I know you said like mm. you, you don't want it to come across as controversial. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe this is like naive of me because I also don't mm. um, experience ADHD, um, mm. but like it doesn't sound controversial as far as like you can tr- try these, like take it or leave it. Um, yeah. But
1: also,
0: <laughs> Like the, the AWPT podcast is primarily, um, our audience is primarily coaches as well. So, you know, for the people listening to this that might be working with clients with ADHD, I think mm. it's it's good for us to sort of arm ourselves with a variety of different tools that we can then present yeah. to our clients to say, again, try these. Like, I, I don't know <laughs> if it's necessarily going to be perfect for you, but like there's some stuff that we can do to just experiment really because um, as you said like if it doesn't work you're not going to necessarily be worse off symptom wise than than you were before yeah um yeah. so when it comes to i guess n- food and meal planning and ensuring that you're getting enough micronutrients especially some of those ones that those key ones that you were talking about before in terms of iron in terms of zinc omega-3s all of this kind of stuff as well um one of the things that you've talked about in your posts and also i know um amy who's the head of the female specific nutrition course and, and she does have adhd has talked about is sort of overstimulation even when it comes with food and making foods like highly sort of palatable and like having you know different textures and stuff like that and figuring out what textures you know are preferable i suppose to the individual Um, When you personally are working with clients that have ADHD, what are some of the discussions that you're having around making meals that are both micronutrient-rich but are also going to suit the individual and like how they experience food?
1: Yeah, this answer is going to suck, but I try to just meet them where they're at, trust trust their judgment in terms of like if they say something works for them, I just try and go on that one. I just try and go with what works for them and try and make the best of that situation. And I I see many levels to this. Um an example that I'm going to use that's completely irrelevant to this, but just to like show how hard this can be, obviously from a dietitian or coach's kind of perspective. Um I've seen a lot of people with autism and fussy eating, quote unquote, with autism can be so challenging, right? Um An example that I kind of like to share to display this is if you have a five-year-old and you serve them something for dinner that they don't like and they don't want to eat, if you left them in a room by themselves for a long period of time and you just kept offering to them in a palatable way so it's warm or whatever, um, they won't starve themselves eventually they will eat and i'm not saying you should ever do that i think that's a terrible idea right but the point i'm just making is like if they would not starve themselves out, will eat something they don't like instead of starving themselves somebody with autism would rather get hospitalized for stuff starve- like than eat that thing in some cases not every single person right but like um fast eating can be like on another level with autism and then i look at that from a perspective of like a dietitian or a coach just being like what do you do with that person if like if there's they're missing some major things and we just can't get them like you just do the best you can whether that is addressing it through supplementation or anything like that and that's how i treat adhd on a different level about being like i meet them where they're at. i try to find what works for them and if there are still gaps like i'll keep trying to like how can we fill those gaps or whatever but once again it's just accepting that maybe not everything will be perfect and we just do the best that we can
0: yeah, I think that's so key to both ADHD, but also so many other different conditions. And even just working with the general population, you know, you have to meet people where they're at. And I think mm. as coaches or as dietitians or nutritionists or sort of people in the health this space, it's so easy to be like immersed in this bubble and just being like, well, I do this and like, I assume that, or I know that this is yeah. you know, good for me and good for the general population. So like, why wouldn't you do it? But you know, not everybody has like health and fitness at like the number one, you know, tippy top of their priority list. And even if it is up there, they might have other, you know, barriers to being able to access those kind of things as well. Um, And so, yeah, I think meeting people where they're at is so important just on a general basis, as well as with people that have specific conditions or disorders that you're working with as well.
2: We hope you're enjoying this episode of the AWPT podcast. I'm Kayla, the founder of AWPT University. And if you're here, you're probably a dedicated fitness professional, personal trainer, or online coach who aspires to create an impact in the women's health and fitness industry through upleveling your knowledge and skills, servicing your clients to the highest standard, and building a business that changes both you and your clients' lives. Because we value your continuous education and want to reward our podcast listeners who are committed to their growth and learning, we want to gift you $200 off our OG AWPT eight-week certification. This comprehensive online course covers women's anatomy and biomechanics, training and programming for women, female-specific nutrition and health, Training during pregnancy and postpartum, peri and postmenopausal considerations, and so much more. Visit www.awptuniversity.com today and use the code AWPTPODCAST, one word and all uppercase, at checkout for $200 off. We've also linked it in the show notes for your convenience. Now, back to the episode.
1: So,
0: you mentioned earlier about. Um, I, I can't recall if it was iron or if it was with the omega-3 example, um, in terms of people with ADHD are potentially slightly more deficient in that, and the link obviously to our earlier discussion around sort of leaning towards things that are a bit more highly palatable, if if we'll say mm-hmm. that, or those sort of dopamine foods. How would you go about working with a client that may initially reach towards those like more highly palatable foods, but having like that conversation around, can we find a balance?
1: Yeah and that's so tough because one we're managing the ADHD but also managing a person because like if you were working with a person without ADHD who also reaches for hyper-palatable foods you'd have a bunch of strategies in mind that you think could help them and it's so hard because with ADHD it's like can we do any of those same strategies like there's a lot of those things that could also help and we're also layering in the ADHD on top so like Some of the first things that like I would start with is firstly doing the like, are we eating enough throughout the day? And somebody who's reaching for these foods would rarely be like, oh no, I'm doing that because I'm hungry. I'm doing that because I just want to eat those foods. Like they would usually like rarely link it to the hunger, but at least if we can rule out the hunger as a starting point, at least if we can be on top of that, that can make it a slightly easier decision to potentially not have that thing. Um, Structure and environment obviously matter. This is where it gets really, really complicated in terms of being like... If you have easy access to stuff all the time, you're probably more likely to have that stuff all the time. Obviously, there's a balance there. I'm not trying to say never have hyperpalatable food around you ever. But if you work in an environment where it's always like next to you or whatever, it's also harder to say no to this stuff, particularly if you do make impulsive decisions. Um, Three is that kind of like planning and preparation once again where possible. That then extends to eating regularly throughout the day. That then extends to um, avoiding that kind of hyper focusing in a way because like in a way that hyper focus is like a bit of a superpower like it helps people get a lot of stuff done if they want to get that stuff done but like that's where i think like little things like alarms come into play being like once again this won't work for everybody but if if you say i'm going to sit down for two hours then i'm going to stop and then i'm going to eat i think setting an alarm for two hours time is a useful thing because it allows you to kind of take um it allows you to use that hyper focus in a good way for those two hours without trying to think about how you've got to pull yourself away from that to then eat because the alarm will take you back ideally um yeah there's there's so many so many things you can do with that but like i also think just starting with basic things about feeling well having a good overall diet where possible is a starting point
0: and i think you know obviously depending on the individual meal prepping and whatnot might not be possible as far as you know whether or not no. they they think to do it all of that kind of stuff but if we're just generalizing it as like a potential option in my head at least, like that sounds like a really good or useful tool because yeah. then you're I... taking away the option of, oh well the, you know, highly palatable, highly processed food is like is just easier and like there's more access to it. So if you've got the option of a meal prep and whether that is, you know, a meal prep that you make yourself or, you know, depending on on the person's means there's also so many different options out in the world of like of meal prep that's done for you in terms of you know certain yeah. companies and stuff that those like microwaveable meals that are you know healthier than just like lean cuisine um but like that's also potentially i would imagine another option
1: yeah that's exactly right that's like really the next thing that i was going to talk to just being like if meal prepping is unrealistic or if cooking regularly is unrealistic you do the next like you you save time where you can like one is like those microwavable meals another thing is like little things like microwavable rice microwavable even microwavable pasta and stuff like that pre-cut salad vegetables um there's other things like even like those roast vegetable trays and stuff like that where it's like it's all cut up for you like you do just put it in the oven or whatever it means you don't have to do all these things spend time on all of these things etc um there's so many different ways you can go about that to make it quicker
0: yeah it's more of that sort of like food prepping rather than meal prepping so you have sort of ingredients on hand that you can sort of like throw together any kind of meal rather than yeah like spending four hours on a sunday like creating three different recipes
1: yeah for sure
0: um the other thing that you did a post on which i would love to chat about is the um link between elimination diets and ADHD. I know you mentioned in that 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 was potentially a little bit controversial as well. Um, And so Mm. I wondered, you know, why? And when you're talking about elimination diets, are you talking, like, what are you talking about specifically?
1: Yeah. So... The reason why I knew, like I thought thought it'd be relatively controversial, and I know why it is, is because with ADHD, there's a lot of challenges already. Like all those things we just talked about are challenges. And then the other thing is the prevalence of binge eating is quite high as well. And we know very clearly with binge eating that adding restriction is not the answer. That's probably more likely to lead to binge eating. And that's a difficult topic in itself because somebody who binge eats often finds in the short term, if they restrict more, they feel like they have more control over it. But very clearly, like, long term, that that makes things worse, right, Um, on average. So the thing that makes it controversial is that the research is really positive on elimination diets. Um, And I was just kind of sharing that just because I'm like, I think that's interesting, right? If I had ADHD, I'd want to know that this research exists, whether or not I want to go down that route. I just think it's interesting. So 12 studies on the topic. 10 of them found consistent improvements in participants who were on an elimination diet. I'll talk about what the type of diet is as well. But in terms of like how effective those studies or that research has been, it's like they found 50 to 80% of participants experienced noticeable improvements in symptoms. And in, the, in one, of the, like, one of the other two studies that didn't, like they found 24% of people noticed improvements and then the 12th study just found no improvement, right? Um, that tells you a few things just off the bat. 50 to 80%, it's promising, right? but lot. then there's still 20 yeah it's, it's exciting right but then there's also 20 to 50 percent who noticed no improvement and that's what makes this a bit tough um the most common because there's obviously been multiple elimination style diets tried which is why i call it an elimination diet rather than giving it a name but the most common thing that has been found to be effective is called an oligoantigenic diet which is a fancy way of saying it's a diet that it avoids common food allergens and that seems weird that's like kind of insinuating that if this works adhd has a food allergy component in a decent portion of cases or it's insinuating that when you cut out a bunch of foods it works and we don't fully know why maybe it's completely unrelated to allergies like so many potential explanations but the most common diet if you wanted a name of a diet is called the few foods diet and basically it's super restrictive it cuts out pretty much every common food allergen. So it's cutting out things like milk, cheese, eggs, chocolate, nuts, etc. But like if you went and firstly, if you Google this and you try and find a list, it's actually hard to find a list. I believe there's probably like books and stuff like that that goes through in a bit more detail. But it's actually hard to find online a list that talks through this. But basically it's just a very highly restrictive diet. The goal of it is that you eliminate a bunch of foods, then you slowly reintroduce foods to try and figure out what causes symptoms. And then you personalize the diet And it can take up to about 18 months to go through the entire thing. Cool. So recapping, exciting, doesn't work for everybody, very hard to do. Anything you want to say before I talk more about that?
0: Uh, No, I guess, again, like I am trying to sort of just envision this diet just based on sort of my own experiences. And I'm thinking somewhat like low FODMAP, esque in the sense that again that's another hmm. sort of elimination diet where you're like cutting out a lot of foods and it sucks yeah. <laughs> um just to yeah. do. um and then as you said like that it takes a long time to do and then you're you're slowly reintroducing you know those different foods to see if there's a symptom i also think just as you say the study is super interesting in terms of when you try and like analyze what it means as far as like is there a link between certain allergens or like particular foods and you know potentially perpetuating adhd symptoms um which i think is super fascinating
1: yeah i love the comparison to the low fodmap diet because it it raises a few things that like i think are relevant when we're assessing should i actually do this with a person with the low fodmap diet and ibs there's a 50 to 80 percent success rate Coincidentally, that's very similar to the 50-80% I just kind of talked about with this. But the thing with FODMAPs is we can often get somebody to pretty much zero symptoms on a low FODMAP diet if it works. That doesn't mean everybody, right? But like 50-80% of the time, we notice a very significant improvement. Then there's a lot of people it doesn't work for or it's unsuitable or whatever. But the reintroduction thing is where it gets really relevant because it's like, okay, these people have almost no symptoms. Now let's say we're trialing lactose, we're reintroducing lactose. We have a small amount, see what happens. Medium amount, see what happens. Large amount, see what happens. If we have a large amount of that food and they don't get symptoms, cool. We know that's not a trigger for them. We then move on. Um, That's where it gets really interesting where where I'm picturing this ADHD um, elimination style diet where let's say you cut out all these foods and you notice an improvement in symptoms and then you reintroduce foods individually. It's kind of hard to tell for sure the link between those foods and the symptoms just because either because it's if you're if you're an adult and you're going through this process you're you're trying to pay attention to how hyperactive and how well you're focusing and everything like that if you're a parent and you're looking at your child and you're going through this process you're trying to analyze these things and let's say the hyperactive thing you're trying to analyze are they more hyperactive but then you have a party on that day or like whatever it is right like it's kind of hard to tell for sure yeah. it's it's a bit subjective um and that's my own in, my own interpretation right so somebody else could have gone through this process and have a completely different opinion than i i do but like i i think it could be hard to tell
0: yeah that's a that's a super interesting point and i think that like sort of it encompasses a lot of the different stuff that we've talked about today in terms of nutrition and managing ADHD symptoms and obviously like you know, take this information and, you know, educate your clients and educate yourself and all of that kind of stuff. But it's having this sort of overarching, I guess, understanding or this like little grain of salt that there are going to be other things, you know, behaviorally or just in terms of like general day-to-day life and and stimulation that are also going to have an impact. And so it's not this, you know, as you say, like be all and end all cure being like, increase your iron and like meal prep and you'll be set. Um, yeah. And then, you know, yeah. You can be having your your high protein steak meal prep at a party, but then there's you know all of these like bl- blasting music playing and like it's a really tight space, and then your your symptoms are going to sort of be exacerbated. So I think that's a yeah really interesting and like important point to sort of bring up again that that there's there's so many different layers to this conversation.
1: Yeah. For sure. The final thing that I'd say on the elimination thing as well is, although I've hyped up the research a little bit, there's one tiny bit that I think is a little bit overlooked with the research, and that is um, that inside those studies, there have been some studies that were, like, a little bit better blinded because, as you can imagine, with how they're doing a lot of this research um. It's being done in a lot of uncontrolled environments where the participants involved kind of know what's going on. Like the parents know what they're doing with their child's food and everything like that. And then they're monitoring symptoms there. The research where it's been blinded and people don't know what's going on, they're just monitoring symptoms and they're not sure which diet they're on or whatever. The effect size dropped about a third of that as well. So it's like less effective than the research has actually made it seem, but it also is still effective, which summarizing a lot of what we've talked about as well, like... That, that's still a key point just being like that still shows that it's clearly played a role from a nutrition perspective even when people don't know what's going on and the same thing with all the those micronutrient things the reason why i'm so passionate about that micronutrient area is because it's just kind of like this is what the research has shown and the research has shown this very clearly being like if you do these things it can help symptoms how much it can help hard to say that's individual some people will be a game changer some people will just help a little bit some people it may not help at all but with that knowledge you can kind of try to address that to the best of your ability and see what happens from there
0: and you've talked like when you're referencing these different studies and research and stuff you're you're mentioning a lot that it's predominantly done on children is that right versus adults yeah i think there's just an
1: yeah 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 and that that's where it's interesting for me because i i think the majority of my audience who are interested in me talking about adhd are adults who care about it for themselves. Like, I do think there is some people who are caring about for children and stuff like that, but just the demographic who follows me, it's mostly people between 20 and 40. So obviously towards the 40, maybe children, but like a lot of people have it for themselves because like they they go to work and they're kind of like, I just want to focus better at work or whatever it is. Um, But a lot of the research is done on children just because I think that's where the interest area is and that's where the funding ends up going.
0: Yeah, which is so interesting too, because, you know, as you're saying, like, for you and and definitely I'd imagine for the AWPT audience and just for coaches that are working with adults, obviously they might be working with kids as well, but um, Mm. the way that, you know, you manage the symptoms for yourself as someone who is experiencing ADHD is going to be different from a parent without ADHD helping to manage their child's symptoms. Well, because you know we we talked about meal prepping, we talked about supplementation and stuff like that, and the different barriers around being able to do that to manage your symptoms. If I'm a parent without ADHD, I'd potentially be much more equipped to meal prep or ingredient prep or make foods that are a bit more micronutrient dense, a bit more accessible and within reach for my child. And if I'm packing their lunchbox, that's going to be like way easier than an adult with ADHD that doesn't have the time or feels overstimulated or like doesn't know where to start, you know, being able to do the same thing.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I just say, it's just different challenges. Hey, cause parents have that. Like I kind of went into like that elimination diet stuff. I was like, Oh, maybe that's a little bit easier for parents to do with kids. than it is for an adult to do themselves for all the logistical reasons. Um, I didn't say that. Um, but I did see some parents talking about that being like, nah, kids are fussy eaters. This is difficult. Like it's hard enough just to get them fed just in general. <laughs>
0: yeah fair, very very fair
1: <laughs> yeah
0: um the other thing just before we finish off I'm, i don't know if if you necessarily know the answer to this but mm. i know that there is potentially different studies that are done particularly in and around kids in terms of like the the gender differences in terms of how adhd presents in young boys versus young girls and and how that potentially mm. sometimes leads to Delayed diagnosis. I think it's with girls in particular because a lot of the symptoms around yeah. ADHD we traditionally th- think of in terms of being like super hyperactive and like being quote unquote like disruptive in class and stuff like that aren't necessarily the same as in young girls. I'm wondering too mm. if we're talking about ADHD um, and the nutritional requirements or tips around that, and then if we also add in this layer of of gender or sex i should say um in terms of like potentially the different micronutrient needs for men versus women is there anything that that you think of or could think of in terms of a link between that
1: yeah so like the most clear one is going to be the iron one if we're just looking at that stuff just being like okay if 84 percent of children in that study had low iron it's like imagine after puberty menstruation started iron needs dramatically increase what are the odds of iron deficiency like I've been around a lot of people who are like, "Oh, I've been so forgetful. My ADHD is really bad at the moment." And then it's just like they get blood tests and just like massively iron deficient as well. Um, yeah. And it's just something that should always be tested and just monitored and trying to address and everything like that. That's that's probably the only like the main thing I've got. And you can see that there's probably or like you can probably see there's an obvious flaw that a lot of research on ADHD has been done historically like over decades like if we look at like food colors research and adhd like that started around like the 80s or the 70s and there's like so much research from back then and a lot of these topics have kind of been looked at being like oh that's just been so let's maybe not do so much now that's my own interpretation i'm open to being wrong on that um but this whole like delineation between like men and women with adhd and how it presents differently and everything like that my interpretation has been that that's a far more recent discussion that's really been brought to the forefront which therefore means the research is a lot stronger just like from stuff back then without even necessarily looking at this yet. Yeah?
0: yeah no that's yeah. that's obviously like such a valid point and i think a valid point across the board when it comes to anything health related in particular like i think yeah it's sucks Thinking about you know, female, and that's obviously what AWPT is trying to do as well is is introduce that conversation of what are, if there are differences in terms of male and female anatomy or nutrition and and all of that kind of stuff and then let alone something that is as, you know, niche as ADHD and, like, managing certain conditions as well.
1: Yeah, 100%. Perfect. I, I go into this without, sorry, you go
0: you go
1: you go you go <laughs> uh, i was gonna say I, I go i go into this without like having any vested interest because it's like although there's like some symptoms i think i have myself and i think i'm like close on the board like i think i'm close to being able to get a diagnosis but i haven't actually just pursued that kind of thing um i don't actually have a vested interest and i just want to help everyone and sometimes mm-hmm. it seems weird as a male in this space like like i don't know but like i like 80 of my audience on instagram is female which therefore means if my goal is to help my audience and i'm speaking about a topic i'm really speaking about that topic with a bit of a bias towards women as well but yeah with stuff like this it's just so hard to tell just because of that research like and where the state of that research is right now
0: um i was just about to wrap up the conversation but i realized we didn't touch on which you, you just brought up then in terms of research around food coloring and adhd yeah um, are we let's just dive into that really quickly before let's do that finish this up because. I'm, you know, again, my brain is just like, I feel like I can I can see a link, but I'd love for you to just talk about what what that actually means and like what the link is.
1: Yeah. So let, let's try to say like anecdotally, heaps of people say this, right? Like heaps, heaps of parents and stuff like this will say this with their children. We, we've we talked about the flaws of anecdotal versus research being like, they both kind of matter. We can't ignore that. Um, if I put up a post saying research shows no link, I, I know for sure that people will comment no, I see a link. Like, it's so clear. Um, but research on food colours and um, symptoms have been relatively inconsistent. The sugar thing I said, meta analysis shows no link, very kind of clear in the research. With food colours, it's inconsistent. It's gone both ways. There, There was about six studies that I found, and two of the six, I think there's more than six, but like, At least two found a pretty clear link. One was um, on a food color called tartrazine, which I think is like a yellowish kind of color. And they found like a dose response relationship, which is like when they measured symptoms, the higher the dosage got, the worse the symptoms got. And that's pretty clear cut, right? One thing that was tough with that study was that some people had no symptoms even at the highest dosage, which therefore means it wasn't relevant for everybody. The other thing was that it was a biased sample size in a way. I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but like they got parents to select children that they thought had symptoms from food colours to then go to this hospital-based study. So it's already a group that we'd expect to have more symptoms from. So even in there to find that there were some that had no symptoms is really interesting. But the, that's just like talking about an individual study. There was like a literature review from twenty twelve, which had like covered all the research and had a really nice summary. They mentioned that a lot of the research had some obvious flaws. For example, lack of placebo control, blinding, etc. They did highlight that there is a bit of research supporting that food colours can play a role with this, in particular, of hyperactivity. Um, there's another thing. Another thing I saw from the UK that the NHS has like six food colors listed. Like it wouldn't take long to find this on Google. If you typed in NHS food colors warnings, um, hyperactivity or ADHD, you'd find a list of six colors that have been more closely linked to symptoms than others. Which, cause as you can imagine, some colors would probably be more linked to this than others. And in the UK, they actually have a warning on this. But the thing I was gonna say with that literature review, which is so fascinating, and it's something that I've thought about a lot since going down this rabbit hole, Is that they highlighted that this is not unique to adhd if you got a massive classroom of children because once again this research is done on children but i i would assume that this applies in adults um and you did this dose response thing with food colors and then you got children sorry teachers to monitor behavior without knowing what's going on or anything like that they have noticed that children across the board increase in hyperactivity with these food colors and that makes it so complex because I said even in that group of people with ADHD, some had no response to it, which therefore means this doesn't affect everybody. But then it also means that it affects people without diagnosable ADHD as well. And the literature review basically, like I said, it was like a bit of a public health thing. But I think that's interesting just being like, that's actually a point that's kind of relevant for everybody, but it's complex because some colours might be more relevant than others. You can take that information how you will. Some people will look at that blanket and be like, just don't eat food colors <laughs> it's that simple but the other final thing i'd wrap up on is that the effect size that was noticed with these food colors in pretty much all cases was relatively small so it's like you could also interpret this by being like probably minimize intake of food colors but it's also probably not too much of a stress if you have some occasionally as well yeah
0: it's not like the worst thing in this there, is there's general like yes there probably is some effect but like, It's not. Even- the end of the world if you consume some. Why, I suppose, what is it about the food coloring? Is it like the the chemicals that are in it? Is it the you touched on it earlier? I couldn't like, give you a good there? answer,
1: hey, because like it, yeah, because it, it it is a chemical itself, but like so many things are chemicals. Like I couldn't give you a good answer as to why. And like I think if we had better answers, this would be easy to even identify which specific colors cause this, rather than just being like oh these ones are more linked in research to causing symptoms.
0: Yeah, no, that's so interesting. Um, because yeah, as you said, like there could be a relationship with the fact that there's like a lot more sugar potentially in foods that are are colored, or if it's yeah, the the chemicals, or if it's you know partly just like the stimulation of like a colored food and like how much of a you know a fun food you're going to eat versus like a beige food or like a gross green one or like whatever. There's there's so much sort of that is wrapped up in this idea of like food sensitivity and color. So let's wrap up this conversation and this has been fascinating and I hope that everybody listening has also found this just as interesting as I have whether you know you experience ADHD yourself and you know this is something that you can relate to or perhaps obviously there are parts of this conversation that you're like nope this does not apply to me but maybe it might apply to one of your clients and all of all of that good stuff so before we finish this conversation is there anything else that you wanted to add Aiden that we haven't touched on that you think is important?
1: I actually think that has covered a lot of the things like that like I I just think very simply just being like nutrition can play a role with ADHD it would be silly to think that it cannot play a role whatsoever just as it would be equally silly to say oh if you just thought your diet out it's going to solve everything like it's somewhere in the middle there. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah I think as I as I said um the only other person aside from you that I've really seen um having a conversation about adhd and training and nutrition is our female specific um, nutrition coach amy who also did a post recently on nutrition but also training and how you know we as coaches might interact with our clients from like an exercise standpoint that might be beneficial for someone with adhd as well Um, so that's obviously another avenue that we can look at ADHD and managing symptoms from like a coach's perspective. Obviously I think it's important for me to put a disclaimer in the podcast around, you know, being a coach and me being not a dietitian, um, and obviously like recognizing for the rest of our audience, like the scope of practice that we have as coaches and personal trainers doesn't, um. You know enable us to you know be able to like diagnose ADHD or like prescribe certain you know meal plans or food, and so it is important for us to one yes, like be educated on the issue and listen to podcasts like this so that we can have more informed conversations with our clients, but also know when to refer out to someone like Aiden or other you know dietitians or health specialists and psychologists so that we can have you know um, or do the best for our clients as well. So, Aidan, thank you so much for coming on the AWPT podcast today. As I said, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. If and because I'm sure our listeners will have as well, where can they find you and interact with you?
1: So there's a few places. The easiest way would be on Instagram as aiden underscore the underscore dietitian um i respond to dms and everything like that so message me any questions etc and then the other place i'd obviously always love to plug is that we've also got a podcast ourselves so the ideal nutrition podcast too
0: amazing and i'll have both of those linked in the show notes below so you'll be able to easily access both the instagram and the podcast and go straight into deep diving into all of aiden's content there So without further ado, team, thank you so much for listening and we'll chat to you next week. Thank you for listening to the AWPT podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with your friends and fellow coaches and subscribe for weekly episodes and content.